Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to a Pain Talk podcast, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week talking to Dr. Koronik regarding obese use disorder in primary care. So, Tina, are the guidelines designed to help clinicians working in primary care to do inductions, or is it for maintenance of patients with obese use disorder? Part of these guidelines uh, are designed to um, demonstrate to clinicians that uh, um, the management of opioid use disorder is possible in primary care and um, it's something that they could actually do. So that would start even from the induction piece um, because and even as we talk about these guidelines, we recognize there's a huge, huge variation in primary care, uh, how they manage this. Or it, like someone like yourself, who's an expert in, in pain management and things. Um, and then there's the other spectrum where people say, I, I don't want to deal with this at all. I don't even want to deal with these patients. I don't want to see them. Um, so a lot of the guideline is trying to just simplify. And that's why we call actually all yes. of our guidelines the yeah. simplified guidelines um, for those of us, you know, who are... Uh, we've got a lot on our plate and just to say, hey, this is something that you can do in your practice. And, and so the induction piece, I mean, even in the guideline, we do have a one pager that describes a simple induction. Um, and of course, that side of the one pager is not entirely evidence based. It's not based on a randomized controlled trial, but that is the practical piece that we had to in- include to give clinicians some type of tool so that they could even go from the, the very basics, identifying these patients and then looking at the induction piece in their own practice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, in a rural, like I didn't plan to, when I started my clinical practice, I didn't plan to kind of all of a sudden be doing chronic pain, you know, addiction mm-hmm. work that, but you, what you quickly realize is that in order to be an effective clinician at the bedside, because we really should be able to offer patients treatment, especially around mm-hmm. chronic disease where we see them. And yeah. uh, so, and, and we didn't have access, it's very difficult in some of the rural communities to even access an opiate recovery program for patients. And in fact, it was, what was astounding to me, and I, and this is some part of the questions that I was curious about your input, is that when I um, for, first started t- uh, treating substance use disorder, opiate use disorder in particular, it was mostly in the palliative care and the chronic pain population that I was mm. managing. And, and incredibly challenging in those populations who are using opiates for medical, for, for the treatment of their pain, and they are using it medically for their pain, but they're not recognizing that, the, the, that they have an opiate use disorder associated. And I'll give you a great example. I had an elderly guy, you know, uh, well, he was probably about 68, uh, so I, I won't call him elderly now since I'm heading up there. But <laughs> but he, what he would do is take his hydromorph cot and open up the capsules in his coffee every morning. And, and I was... I was like, okay, well, that that is aberrancy, but but from his perspective, is that he was just managing his pain, and it 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 just. But when I when we actually started the recovery program, and I was seeing patients who developed opiate use disorder from non medical use of opiates, it was like two different worlds completely yes. in terms mm-hmm. of the talking points. So, primary care practitioners who are managing pain, and who have patients who have developed an opiate use disorder, these are by far the most challenging population to get them to that place of treatment. But one. Once they're there, they're actually not yep. as bad. They're actually much easier to manage. But I'm right. just curious about that that observation that I had. But what, what you think about that? Because it is a really challenging uh, thing to do in primary care is to help a patient understand that they have the problem, but also getting them the treatment for that problem because they just see it as managing their pain. 
Yeah, it's, I, I mean, this everywhere we go, this is the one issue that comes up all the time with primary care clinicians because it's there's there's this huge gray area, they say, you yes. know, is this patient, their pain just so poorly controlled that they need more opioids or do they have an opioid use disorder? You, you know, even when we, so this was a an area we certainly tried to look very intently in. And, and, and honestly, if we're, if we're honest about it, if you look at like DSM-5 criteria, it doesn't really help because no. some of those criteria no. are exclusions for patients who are on opioids regularly. So it really yeah. leaves you in this strange conundrum. Yeah. And so trying to put that into perspective in, in some ways as we looked at this, that there's a lot of things we do in medicine that are not completely black and white, right? There's yeah. sort of that art of medicine. And um, actually, it, when we first did our algorithm, uh, sort of managing primary care uh, opioid use disorder, at the at the top we had written probable OUD, and our, <laughs> <laughs> because we recognize that there is this very there's a bit of a grayness into this, but uh, some of our reviewers, you know. That really got them inflamed. This how you know what? What if a, an algorithm started with probable cancer? You know, would it would be the same? Oh, um, so uh, that's why we looked at uh, you know, is there ways to identify this? And actually, that was one of the Mike. Mike, you did one of the tools looking at just screening tools, but you did an in-depth uh, review of that as well, right? Yeah. So the we we looked at the different uh, screening interventions for. Uh, opioid use disorder in primary care, but it's of course very hard because many of the clinics have mixed, uh, like the the studies that were done in clinics with presentations from people who were using street opioids, they were done in patients who were actually in treatment, so all clearly had the condition. There were all sorts of of caveats, and then probably the the, the most difficult thing about all of this and was a huge challenge for us right at the beginning of designing the systematic reviews that would accompany mm-hmm. the guideline is that we had a heck of a time defining opioid use disorder and yep. and, mm-hmm. and the 10 different ways to say that from yeah. you know previous use of the word addictions to whatever and then when you actually look at the medical literature you realize that the reason that Tina and I and the rest of the group were really struggling to to define it is because everyone was yeah. Um, yeah and there were more there were more gold standards that had been used as the definitive diagnosis of opioid use disorder there were more of those than there are tools to screen for it yeah <laughs> that's interesting so so when you when you kind of wrap your mind around that you realize that it's a bit of a quagmire out there so us yeah. as primary care clinicians who were saying you know, I, I'm finding it hard to sort this out in my practice. Recognize that that the very pointy end of the stick cannot sort this out well. Like yeah. it's a challenge. Yeah. Um, so what we did is we tried to look at things that that did it against a gold standard that we felt was probably most reasonable, and that's from the DSM. And we tried to look at ones that were looking at patients who were mostly in a, um, they could be in a chronic pain setting, but they were not in an addictions setting. So trying to find those patients because they would more likely mirror our primary care patients. There's virtually no really good primary care studies. Yeah. Um, so we need something else. And and the what was interesting to me because once we got some because I was trying to manage these in in our in my chronic pain clinic as well as the palliative care and it was just a nightmare. Um, so but when we got the opiate recovery program, so what I would do because they had more nursing support and all that, um, we sort of tran- but we transferred them over to that clinic. But there was a huge amount of stigma 
uh, to manage mm-hmm. these patients. Oh. Now, what I what I have been doing is is more and more of my my family physician colleagues are willing to take their patients back into their practice, which is really good, uh, as long as I offer them some support. But yeah, there's a huge amount of stigma for them to be managed in the opiate recovery program. Um, so it's it's interesting for me. It was and I totally uh, you know obviously if somebody was altering a route that was always a, a big concern. Yeah. But if I could step back and say this use is problematic, knowing that I've you know you've kind of gone through you know is this opiate induced toxicity? Is this opiate induced you know is this diversion? Mm-hmm. You know all the kinds of things that we kind of go through in our in our mind. Uh, but if I could say that it was problematic, then I then it required me to actually cause an action. It didn't mean that they had addiction at that stage. It just meant that I was concerned, and right. so that we needed to do something different at that point, which, which is what I do clinically. I mean, if I'm managing a yeah. patient with palliative care and the the treatment is not doing the trick, I need to step back and do something different. You know, that, obviously yeah. th- that population you're not going to see as much. You will see addiction, but not very often. It's often I find issues around uh, something that we don't think about very much around the diversion is spousal abuse or elder abuse or, you know, teenagers in the family that are struggling with addiction and their family member who has a cancer diagnosis that's diverting. Anyway, it's just you could, it's so complicated yeah. out there. But this is, mm-hmm. so it was interesting to me, Tina, in the guideline. So when I looked at the graph, because most of us kind of look at the pictures and we kind of follow the graph and, you know, get the important pieces that are out there. You talk about mm-hmm. Cadian uh, in your manuscript, but you don't highlight it in that guideline summary. And, and I, I must say, I use a ton of Cadian to bridge patients. Uh, when I'm trying to do opiate rotations, they're not ready to think about buprenorphine or to think about uh, methadone, um, but they need something different. And uh, so Cadian is what I tend to use a lot, and it's usually where I kind of support family physicians, and I, knowing that there are some challenges, especially around the dosing. But I'm curious yeah. about what your research found around Cadian. And- so, yeah, so good question. And I think it's interesting, as we did this document, I think uh, we've even seen, you know, things continue to evolve around a little bit. So we did look at Cadian, and the thing is, if we're specifically looking at their management uh, with opioid use disorder, the, there's just not, um, I think we identified one randomized control trial in that patient population. So we know even from our guideline committee that it is um, that it is a medication that they're using a fair amount and they find uh, anecdotally seems to be quite helpful. But as we were trying at least the algorithm side to build that on the best available evidence and, and partly for docs, part of the reason we did this guideline is, is really for the docs who are skeptical, for the docs oh, who are like, okay. yeah, you know what, I've, yeah, we've, this same like opioids, yeah. right? Everyone told us opioids were good and now everyone's, you know, we've got so many problems and, and now we're hearing that buprenorphine is good and, and again, we're skeptical. And so trying to look at interventions that had the best available evidence and give them just an idea that, hey, there are some treatments out here and yeah. it actually looks like they work. So, you know, and part of that is a stigma piece. Part of it, that is uh, um, docs just suspicious that, you know, we're just, we're hearing about something else that's not going to be useful. So, so that's why we didn't include Cadian in this. And, okay. and yeah, certainly Cadian could have been something. And um, so we mentioned it briefly, but we didn't have a strong an evidence base. Okay. Um, yeah. So we thought, you know, let's just go with what what we have the best yeah. randomized controlled data on. Yeah, I rarely use it in, in uh, individuals who have developed, um, you know, opiate use disorder from the uh, non-medical use. They they either go right to, you know, buprenorphine or they go to um, to methadone. But, uh, yeah, the pain population, we, that that's where we tend to go over a period of time. I just wanted to share, too, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the American Pain Society um, uh, came out uh, with some guidelines, or it basically what they're in terms of, rather than the DSM-5 in terms of diet, 
diagnosing opiate use disorder in this population. They use, to me, when you actually go through it, it looks like the five C's, but they don't oh, use yeah. the DSM-5. Mm-hmm. They recommend the, the five C's. I don't know if that's that's at all helpful. But uh, um, the other thing was um, the take-home doses. I'm always very cautious, uh, especially early on in therapy, even though I think the evidence tells us that patients are relatively safe. And even if you're looking at diversion, it's, you know, buprenorphine in particular, not methadone, obviously, but that um, the the risk to the patient is a little bit lower if diversion does happen. I'm, is that, am I interpreting that wrong? Because <laughs> it, it seemed like you that you were encouraging take-home doses fairly early in induction. We are. And again, so part of this, again, is, is trying to remove barriers because yes, what we hear yeah. from so many clinicians is, yeah, I can't do this because there's so many barriers to me having to monitor this patient's urine, for me yes. having to write up these contracts, for me having to, you know, have them having to do daily dispensing. And so trying to, uh, you know, and if I'm in a rural community, there's no way I can do this because there's not even a pharmacist around who can do daily dispensing. And so, yes. um, yeah. Looking at the evidence, we did find some evidence that looked at sort of take-home versus daily, and there was no difference in, in the outcomes that, that we thought were important. Um, so, of course, and we're assuming that most clinicians are going to they're gonna come to it with sort of your skepticism, like, yeah, I'm kind of anxious about this. I think we need to monitor this carefully. So it's just pushing them a little bit to say, you know what, the evidence that we have says um, that giving these patients a few more doses is, is generally not harmful. And of course, it's based on yeah. your recognizing clinicians have their own sense of which patients those are going to be. Um, and so thinking of, yeah, in rural settings, trying to make this applicable to patients in rural settings, yeah, this is something that could still be done there. Or um, patients who are, are working or employed, um, you know, these are the type of patients who are saying, you can start this and you can, uh, it's, it's really just changing the the way we view this and saying yes. it's not as scary as we've kind of been taught. I think a lot of us, like myself going through medical school, um, totally scared of methadone, just the yeah. potential side effects, all the requirements around it. And so we're just trying to remove some of those barriers and say, you know what, this is something we could definitely do and we can make it work with our patients. I think in, in most patients, in my experience, is that um, you know the issue around the use of opiate agonist therapy is 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 relatively safe. It's what gets added into the mix that causes most of the problem in terms of the benzos and if the patient is struggling with right. some alcohol use as well. Um, we're yeah. almost done. We're almost done. I just have a just a one more, actually two more questions that I wanted to ask, and mm-hmm. this is something that comes up for me all the time uh, around the monitoring of patients uh, who are. Are, uh, you know who are using opiate agonist therapy uh, or any high risk therapy actually and uh, but um, for most primary care practitioners the immunoassays are just unless you know the lab really well and you know the immunoassay that you're using they're just fraught with inconsistencies you know false <laughs> negatives false positives so I I often will recommend the gas chromatographies especially in a patient that a physician may be you know just even a one-time you know gas chromat because at least you're looking specifically at the individual substances I'm just curious about what you think about that and the urine interpretation as a whole it's a fascinating yes. topic Topic. Uh, yeah. We initially tried to develop a one-pager for clinicians that we would include in the guideline, um, and we, we just couldn't. Even in talking with our toxicologists here, yes. they said yeah. there's no way we can put this all in one page. Yeah, it's <laughs> so, crazy. You know, this is, so yeah. it's, it's very complex, but I agree. And I think actually in Alberta, they're moving more towards the gas chromatography yes. because you're absolutely right. It's just fraught with difficulties in interpretation. And, and uh, it's so complex, we could not put it on one page. <laughs> yeah. So um, you know then that there's lots of uh, smart people talking about this and how do we improve this and how yes. do we 
How do yeah. we do this in a way that, yeah. uh, you know, we don't end up penalizing patients exactly. because of an incorrect, you yes, know, exactly. urine or, or yeah. vice versa. So and, and, I, I agree with you. Yeah, we need to and I better. Tell clinicians, yeah. you know, you never, you never, you never do a urine drug monitoring test to a patient. You do it for a patient, <laughs> right? Yeah, so and, that you yeah, can and, help and, have again, that conversation. That the, yeah. Um, the, in our um, in our guideline, that idea of you know, it, it shouldn't be like a mandatory. You have to do this before I do anything, and it's a punitive sort of intervention. Yeah. Yeah. It's more like I'm doing this to help inform all of us so we can just treat you better. Exactly. Right, that idea. I want to keep yeah, you safe. So really changing yeah. the approach, how we approach these patients. Yeah. It's not like we're trying to punish them or they're bad. It's more yeah. we're just trying to help. And yeah. what information can we gather that will help us to make yeah. this work? I always tell them that, uh, you know, your life is important. It matters. You know, our job is yeah. to keep you as safe as possible. Just like if I used any other type of high-risk medication like Coumadin, I do some right. testing on that just to monitor the medication and <laughs> make sure you stay safe. And That's a good analogy. I'm just laughing because it's a good analogy. It is. Like, I, I, I would not send them off with Coumadin without checking to make sure their yeah. levels. And so I, t- I always tell them it's because I care enough to have those boundaries and to keep you safe. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, exactly. The, the last thing, well, there's two last things, sorry. The Pearl section was also very helpful and just wanted to make sure that people know that that section is there in that uh, that area as well. It's just, it's very good, I found. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know yeah. what, that it it um it's not as much based on, you know, randomized control evidence, but yeah. we recognize because there is no trials on that data, we needed if we're trying to make this simpler for clinicians, here's some of your, you know, some of your colleagues who have done this a fair amount who say, Hey, here's some tips that might help you actually get started. So. Yeah, exactly. So the the other thing I'll just put out to you guys, I don't know if you're the the World Health Organization, this is this is a, a complex question, but it's just something I'm curious if we will ever get there. But the <laughs> uh, World Health Organization uh, recognized chronic pain in May of 2019 as a disease in its own right. So it's got its own ICD 11 classification. Um, and it's actually classified it into primary, secondary, which is actually not too bad. I, I, I don't find it. Do you ever think we'll see simplified guidelines for chronic pain as a distinct illness? Well, we're going to try. Yeah, because um, <laughs> it gets very confusing. Try. I always, because when I, when I, I, um, when I try and help patients understand chronic pain, I, you know, you want to embrace all of those other conditions that they're, their journey in the healthcare system. They've been told degenerative disease, they're told osteoarthritis, they're told, you know, all the different conditions. And then I'll put chronic pain way out here and I'll say, okay, so chronic pain is different from these conditions. Do they influence each other? They do, but it's a unique disease. So when they came out with this ICD classification, I went like, this is so cool. <laughs> yeah. So I, so I, I, I I hear what you're saying. Like we're 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 still in the guideline. We're partitioning it up, and that's why we're designing our work right now to do these kind of conditions and figure out what. Uh, looking at osteoarthritis first, and then back pain, and then neuropathic pain to kind of figure out the best management. But then we're going to try and do a kind of overarching uh, chronic pain guideline for primary care, and it'll be uh, simplified in that we're going to try and help clinicians triage the best therapies for chronic pain and and I'm hoping we'll find some synergies for to make it simple like in the sense that maybe the same maybe the same key drugs could be tried for two or three different conditions and therefore we don't have to think about the origins but just think about the pain like what the causes mm-hmm. so we're I, I think this this guideline is being run a little bit differently because we're looking at the classical pharmaceutical and non-pharmaceutical interventions for each of the three main pain areas. But then we're going to ask the committee, we're, not, we're bring, bringing together a committee and we're going to still say, you can ask questions as well 
um, it'll be limited. They can't ask infinite number, but some questions that, that give kind of overarching chronic pain um, approach. And so we're, we're going to be we're going to be doing that to be part of the guidelines. So we'll still have stuff on osteoarthritis or back yes, pain or what yeah, have you. Yeah. But but there'll be some overarching themes yeah. in the management of chronic pain um, yeah. in primary care. And that's our stick is to focus on primary care and yes, um, yeah. try and make things as simple as possible. And it's, it's interesting, part of the reason, I don't know if Tina mentioned it early on, but the part of the reason we did the simplified opioid guidelines is our colleagues were saying to us, and I think she did kind of indicate it that that can they believe what's being told to them about mm-hmm. buprenorphine? And we've found that we have a, a number of uh, particularly family docs, but others, other primary care clinicians who will come to us as kind of a, a sounding board or a voice of reliability because they'll say to us, did you guys look at this? Do you think what's being said is true about and it doesn't have to be opioids. It can be a lot of different products. They came to okay. us about the no-wax cannabinoids, yeah. a lot of different things. And so, you know, we're, in a, we're really lucky to have that uh, trust from our colleagues mm-hmm. um, and we take it seriously. So we're hoping to be able to do the same thing in, in chronic pain management. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's seeing it. And I think it's helpful for the patient to see it as a very distinct illness. Like a, I, I just, in terms of kind of trying to look at effective therapies and it just gets so confusing when there are other, other conditions that are, though com- those other comorbidities are important, obviously, but uh, it just gets very confusing sometimes. How, uh, now this may be a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it. Medicine gives me permission to ask de- dumb questions. <laughs> Is that uh, um, w- when you look at the osteo arthritis guidelines and degenerative arthritis. I'm always curious about how people see osteoarthritis and degenerative arthritis. Do you see them as the same entity, although osteo tends to be more knee and back tends to be... Can you help clarify that for me? I find it confusing sometimes in the conversations. So, um, Tina, do you want to go? Because we just talked about this with back and... yeah. Yeah, like I mean, so I'm kind of laughing because we because we just had this discussion. We had this very complex discussion with our group about you know like how if it's sciatic pain or OA pain or MS yeah. pain in your low back, and then we said uh, we love to talk about different mechanisms of action. And honestly, we'd have no idea. So yeah. it's just like, do you have pain in your knees? Okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so yes. It, okay. it's it, the the distinction I think is more academic than it is okay. to the yeah. person experiencing this pain. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. we would be, and we talk a little bit about that with, you know, medications. People love to discuss mechanism of action. We say we don't really care how it works. Exactly. It's just more like, what's the what's the symptom? Is it better on this medication? Okay, we're done. Exactly. So. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Again, just trying to make it really simple. That's that's how we think. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know, Mike, does that, did I miss anything there? No, 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 that's it. Exactly. Like, so if we... Yeah. With back pain, we hear all the time, what's radicular pain, what's sciatic pain, and every time I ask that, someone has another view of what where the definition of radicular pain and yeah. sciatic pain. and There was and four some, of us, four <laughs> clinicians. We all we were like, no, that's not how I define well, it. Okay, I feel better <laughs> now. I feel I so it. much yeah. better now. And I've heard back specialists get up and argue about which type of pain this is when someone's bending forward or bending back. And I, I, just like Tina says, as a frontline clinician, for most of us, it's pain. Exactly. And that's what matters. Yeah. We, we, we yeah. want to make sure that this isn't cancer yes, or yes, um, yeah. an infection or something, obviously like a red flag pain. Yeah, yeah. But if it's, mm-hmm. if it's 
non-red flag pain, yeah. we, want, we want to simplify things as much as possible. So how well will this product work or this intervention? How well will exercise? And we know that for some things, like for example, the idea of bed rest versus immediate activity, there may be subtle distinctions there, which, which we'll tease out. But I remember looking at the literature years ago where it might matter a bit if it's sciatica versus non-sciatica. But that was early readings in the literature. It wouldn't surprise me if there was absolutely no difference, as, as yeah. is found in most yeah. cases. It's interesting now to me because I hear sciatica pain being called neuropathic pain and not back pain at all. And so we, we seem to keep dividing things and making them more complicated rather than yeah. trying to simplify things. Absolutely. You know, I think the most important tool that I've ever, I've learned through my career is, is yes, those interventions, alternative, you know, the, the pharmacotherapy, alternative therapy, but it's the communication, the communication mm-hmm. piece in terms of how we listen and validate that pain experience for that patient. And then, of course, making sure that there's nothing new going on in that tissue. But that listening and validating and having those tools where I believe you, this is real. And uh, it is by far, I think, the most important skill we can develop. Obviously, it's nice to be able to know what the evidence is around the pharmacotherapy, interventions, things like that as well. But the the talking points, I think, can be probably one of the most powerful tools, uh, especially in some of the environments. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, this is, this is, thank you so much. This was a great discussion. I'm looking forward to all of these new guidelines that are coming out. And, uh, but thank you so much for your time. I didn't know if you had any, any last thoughts, any advice for uh, family physicians, Um, uh, just in terms of looking out for your new guidelines. When can we expect them? Well, we, we'll uh, have a, we'll have ahead, a, a review on osteoarthritis pain management actually coming out mid-March in the CFP. And that will have a one-pager, um, so the iconograph where with the happy faces for different interventions for OA that clinicians could use with their patients as well. Nice. Um, yeah. And uh, we'll, I'll be happy to know that turns out exercise is still the best intervention. Awesome. So, uh, <laughs> so that'll be coming out mid-March and then we'll be slowly working on the other types and the guideline will probably be a, a year or so after that. So. Wonderful. Great. Okay. Well, listen, thank you both so much and have yourself a great day. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.